I want to start by reading from a prayer by Karl Rahner, which is a meditation on Jesus' prayers on the cross. It's published in Karl Rahner's Prayers for a Lifetime. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I want to draw attention to how Rahner understands what Jesus is doing in his cry of forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this night of the senses and of the spirit, in this desert that consumes everything in your heart, your soul is still in prayer. And I love how in English, at least, you get that, that play on stillness, settledness in prayer, and the continuation of prayer. Your soul is still in prayer. The dreadful wasteland of a heart devastated by suffering becomes in you a solitary call to God. O oh, prayer of anguish, prayer of abandonment, prayer of unfathomable weakness, weakness, prayer of a forsaken God, let us adore you. So Jesus has prayed in such a way that his prayer, he and his prayer are one, so that Rahner can address the prayer of Jesus as we can address the heart of Jesus or the heart of Mary as something created for our, for our participation. Oh, prayer of anguish, prayer of abandonment, prayer of unfathomable weakness, prayer of a forsaken God, let us adore you. If you prayed like this, O Jesus, if you prayed in such an agony, is there any abyss so deep that we cannot call out from it to your Father? Is there any despair so hopeless that it cannot become a prayer by being encompassed within your abandonment? Is there any anguish so numbing that it must no longer expect its mute cries to be heard amidst heaven's jubilation? And then Rahner turns with these glorious questions. He turns, and agonizing questions, to reflection on the fact that Jesus is praying the 21st Psalm, or 22nd Psalm, depending on which order you have. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rahner says, are an ancient lamentation, lamentation which your Holy Spirit himself once put into the heart and upon the lips of a holy man to express his anguish. And so, if I dare speak this way, the only prayer that you wanted to say during this most bitter agony was one that had been prayed thousands and thousands of years ago. The only prayer you wanted to say was one that had been prayed. And so, as, as we turn our attention to Psalms in the time of Lent, I, I want to begin by attending to the fact that the Psalms are ours only as they are not ours. That we've received them, and received them not only from other Christians, but received them from Jews, received them from the sons and daughters of Abraham who entrusted them to us. Jesus learned the Psalms. He learned them from his mother. Her song reflects the fact that she has deeply, deeply imbibed the prayers of the Psalms. Jesus prays the Psalms because he's learned to pray the Psalms. The apostles pray the Psalms because they learned to pray the Psalms. In, in the book of Acts, when we're told that the, the first Christians, the first followers of the way, devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the apostles' teaching, they also devoted themselves to the prayers. They devoted themselves to the Psalms, to praying the Psalms, to praying them as Jesus prayed them, to praying them with Jesus and to Jesus as Jesus praised them. But I, I think everything else that I want to say, everything else that I think we need to hear over these reflections during Lent begins with this kind of recognition that Christian prayer begins as Jewish prayer, that we, we are guests to prayer. David Kelsey's two-volume work on the doctrine of human being, eccentric existence, makes the point that we live on borrowed breath. Well, it's also true that we pray borrowed prayers and that we only learn to pray by praying prayers we did not write, by praying prayers that did not rise up in us first. And recognizing that, that we we are guests, we are, we are hosts for others only as we are guests of the people of God, the sons and daughters of Abraham, the heirs of of Abraham's promise. Willie Jennings 
I just earlier today finished a piece reflecting on Willie Jennings' readings of Scripture. And if you know Willie Jennings' work, you know that right at the heart of his project is this reminder that our, the problems of colonialism, the problems of modern racism begin in forgetting, in the ancient church, forgetting its Gentileness, forgetting that it was grafted into a way of life it did not create. And what, what he calls whiteness, Jennings calls whiteness, is in some ways a, an assertion of self-creation. It's a, a way of imagining your life as a life that's unbounded by anything other than your desires and your willingness to act to fulfill your desires. But prayer for Christians begins in yieldedness and submission. It begins in the posture of the student, of the disciple, of the child. It begins in recognizing that I cannot pray what is in my heart to pray until my mouth and body have learned to pray prayers that have arisen in someone else's heart. Jesus, yes, Jesus' heart, the sacred heart of Jesus, the sacred heart of Mary, but only if I also recognize that his heart and her heart are formed by the people of God, God has formed in the midst of the world. So to get at that, I want to look at reflections on the Psalms by two friends, two Germans, one a Christian and one a Jew, one that everyone knows, Martin Buber, Jewish philosopher, most famous for his little book, I and Thou, and Eugen Rosenstock Husey, who was a friend of his, a Christian who was born a Jew and non-observant Jew, in Berlin in the late 1800s, and then converted to Christianity late teens, early 20s, goes on to become a leading scholar, ends up moving to the United States, eventually dies here in the U.S. He's an eccentric thinker, as you'll hear, greatly exaggerates at times some of the connections that he sees across the traditions he works in broad strokes at times. If you think of him as a painter, he is he's certainly painting vast, vast scenes and working in broad, broad strokes. But I think both Buber and Rosenstock QC share not only a friendship, they, they were friends, along with Franz Rosenweig, who wrote most famously The Star of Redemption. They, they shared an experience, obviously, in, in Germany, watching, having lived through the world, the First World War, serving in the First World War, and then watching the rise of Nazism, Hitler. And both of the pieces that I want to share with you today, first by Rosenstock, you see, and then by Buber, are, are pretty obvious reflections, not only on the Psalms, but on prayer and Israel's faith and what that has to say to the problem of Nazism and and why it is that people were so so completely taken in by Hitler. And I think the connections to our present circumstances, well, I won't need to draw those connections. I think you'll be able to see them easily enough. So without further ado, I want to turn to this essay. It was first, it was a letter written to a friend, Cynthia Harris, from Eugen, Eugen Rosenstock, UC, in 1944, October the 19th, 1944 to be exact. And it was then, in the following year or so, it was published as an essay in a journal, the Journal of Religion. And then I'm reading it in a collection of Rosenstock UC's writings. I'm not going to read the entire letter, but it is given in this collection the title, Hitler and Israel, or On Prayer. And I am going to read swaths of it again with the caveat that there are times that he's really exaggerating connections overstating his case he's painting in broad strokes but i think there's there is astonishing insight here to the faith of israel the prayers of israel the psalms in the mouth of the church in the body of the church and the ways in which that becomes a prophetic act of witness against the powers that abuse their authority and abuse their gifts, failing to fulfill their responsibilities. So 
uh, and, and one more thing, I think this prepares us for reflection on the penitential psalms, the psalms of Lent, which it will do in, in coming talks. So I'm just going to jump right in. This is Eugene Rosenstock, QC on prayer and the difference between the faith of Israel and the paganism of Hitler. The specific role of the chosen people was denied by 19th century critics. The scholars broke the backbone of Jewish history by reading Christianity into the last fourth of our sources, into the prophets, and by treating the first three quarters of the tradition of a nom- as the traditions of a nomadic oriental tribe who shared the superstitions of Edom and Egypt. So here, Rosenstock Husey is, is criticizing the dominant frame of reference in the research universities of the time, the so-called history of religions approach, which argued that the primitive past in Israel was the same as the primitive past in Egypt and Edom and elsewhere around the world, and that human beings, as they evolve, slowly move out of that dark primitive past into a brighter and brighter, more liberal, humane future, and that Israel's prophets are further along that line of progress, higher up the arc of progress, than are Moses and David. Abraham, Moses, and David. And Rosenstock Husey is calling BS on that. He argues instead that in the middle of the world, Israel preferred to be disliked from the beginning with Abraham, Moses, and the judges, as well as the prophets, to be disliked for God's sake rather than to worship with Bedouins and Egyptians. Right. So he's, he's insisting here not that Israel is unneighborly, but that Israel's worship calls into question the worship of the neighboring peoples. And that this is true from the beginning. It doesn't become true with the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and so on. But it's true from the beginning with Abraham. Since Israel resisted Egypt and Edom, there was no reason to be surprised that through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through the prophets, the same protest was launched against Edom as against Egypt. So when he says David, he means the Psalms. So in Abraham, in Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, there is a protest against the idolatry of the nations around them. Not unneighborliness, but a a refusal to accept the corruptions of power, as you will hear, that emerge in these religious practices at their borders, and sometimes within their borders. Hence, it is true to say that Abraham and Mary belonged to the same chosen people who had said no to the idols of the temple states and the bloodthirsty ghosts of the tribes. And that sentence, that's why Rosenstock, you see, is worth reading, in spite of what is exaggerated in him, in spite of what's just deeply mistaken at times in what he writes, this, I think, is, is truly a breathtaking insight. It's obvious once you've heard it, but it's easy to forget that Abraham and Mary belong to the same tradition, the same chosen people who said no to the idols of the temple states and the bloodthirsty ghosts of the tribes. The first day of this no was established when Abraham forwent the temptation of becoming the chieftain of one more tribe and did not sacrifice in the power of chieftaincy his son Isaac, And the same day was created when Moses, learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, left their sky world nonetheless. Both these acts established the first day of Israel. And and that renunciation, Abraham leaving his father's house, Moses leaving the house of the Pharaoh, these renunciatory acts are acts at the heart of prayer. The last day of Israel was created. Those are the first day of Israel. The last day of Israel was created when Mary, inside the promised land, I need to go back. The last day of Israel was created when, to speak in a figure, Mary, inside the promised land, was told, flee to Egypt. And when the son of Abraham offered himself as sacrifice. So you you get this kind of inclusio, right? That Abraham does not sacrifice his son. Elie Wiesel has a wonderful essay on, on this very point. Abraham does not sacrifice his son. That is at the heart of what it means for Israel to be Israel. And in the end, the son of Abraham offers himself as a sacrifice, but in an altogether different sense. And Mary, of course, 
and flees from the promised land into Egypt. It makes no difference that these days lasted thousands of years. Once they began, they testified to the fact that man is created and not nature. And this, even though I don't, I don't know that Bonifer ever read Rosenstock, you see, Bonifer in ethics talks about the ways in which through the fall, creation becomes nature. And that is a reflection almost certainly on Maximus the Confessor's theology of human being and creation. And I think or his cosmology and all of that, I think, holds together, right? The human beings, we're meant to belong to creation, not nature, not the world as we experience it, but the world as God purposes it and knows it. And in that way, we create eons and eras. We make epics. Skip ahead just a bit. Israel wrote the Bible. To this day, the church universal, regardless of denominations, praise the Psalms of David. And what I love about Rosenstock Husey's essay is that it's calling attention to that fact, right? The ways in which our prayers, our most basic prayers, along with the prayer of Jesus, the Lord's Prayer, is prayer we did not write, right? A prayer he learned and taught us to pray. As a power in our own days and as a question mark to our own future, and remember that line, a question mark to our own future, Israel speaks to us most immediately through the Psalms. So it's true that Jesus is the Psalms incarnate, but it's also true that Israel is embodied in the Psalms. So Jesus is also Israel incarnate. For this reason, we shall now make a second start. In, in other words, I'm going to, he's telling us, letting Cynthia know, the woman he's writing a letter to, He's going to rework that history, recast Israel's history in light of the Psalms, in light of what the Psalms teach us about what it means to be human. The unique historical creature Israel wrote the Bible. Can we do without it? What was created by Israel that must go on forever? Why is Hitler wrong? And I love his recognition, which is, again, astonishing, that Israel's vocation bound up with the Bible and in particular with the Psalms, is how we know, knowing that vocation, is how we know that Hitler is wrong and how we recognize his wrong to be as grievous as it is. The simplest way to answer these questions might be to look at the kind of language created by the Jews. No language that has not been revitalized by a translation of the Bible distinguishes clearly between the acts of God, the properties of nature, and the roles of human beings, the roles of man. So what, he, what he's telling you, and you'll, you'll hear he, he will unpack that claim a bit as, we, as he goes through the essay, that Israel's prayer teaches us that there's a distinction to be made between God and what God does, nature and how it happens, the, the seasons, the stars, the soil, the, the animals, the nature as we know it, the cycles of life and death, and the roles of man, what it is human beings are to do, what their vocation is in light of God being God and nature being what it is. Israel's Bible has added a new dimension, a new dimension of language to tribal and Templar speech. And since we know already that man is man when he speaks or listens, Israel would not be unique in human history if her speech had not rung out with a new tone. So he says, all human beings speak, and he's here talking about speech in multiple senses. But he insists that Israel's speech is different. There's a holiness to Israel's speech, a uniqueness, an otherness. And now he makes this remarkable argument that it's Hitler and Hitlerism, the rise of the Third Reich, and the absurdities that go with it, the obvious idolatry, or what should be obvious idolatry, that casts into relief the uniqueness of Israel. So if it's true that knowing Israel and Israel's vocation exposes Hitler for what he is, it, it also should be true that if we see Hitler for what he is, it will cast into relief Israel's uniqueness. And I think historically that has happened. I think post-Holocaust theology has recovered so much of what was lost in the Christian tradition that was covered over by supersessionism in various various forms. We can reopen our ears to this new tone, Israel's tone, thanks to Hitler. 
Hitlerism is a plunge into the pagan world of tribes and temples as it existed before Judaism arose. Now what is lacking, now what is lacking, he asked the question, in Hitler's linguistic equipment? If he actually does, as he boasts, belong to another solar constellation, he belongs to the pre-Israelitic world. If this is so, he must be unable to say something that the Bible says on every page. So what he says is, where are the gaps in what Hitler's doing? Hitler, the speechmaker, what is it that Hitler cannot say? This letter, the one he's writing, deals with the element absent from Hitler's mighty speeches. So here, here are, here's what la- is lacking in Hitler's speeches. By speech, we recognize and orient ourselves and others. So you'll, you'll hear, not only in this essay, but in anything that Rosenstock UC writes, you'll hear his kind of big sweeping theories about what speech is and how it works across cultures and times. And that's what he's referencing here. The tribes recognized themselves and their clannish order in animals and stones, trees and mountains. They called themselves lions and foxes, crows and eagles, because man must somewhere get orientation for his bewildering freedom. The temples depicted the sky world. In the stars, men recognized their own proceedings. Israel built the temple. So he's now going to talk about the ways in which Israel's speech again, in in multiple senses, differs from the speeches of the other nations. Israel built a temple, it is true, but they added that God did not dwell in it, as the God of all other temples did. Israel voided the temple. Israel circumcised her young men, it is true, but they did it to the child in the cradle, not to the initiate novice of the fertility orgies. Israel voided the rites. Israel wrote poems, but she denied that she wrote them, lest man-made poems become idols. And that, that's the Psalms. She insisted that she was told and that she replied, Israel voided the arts. In other words, prophecy took the place of arts. In these three acts, she emptied the three great speeches of the heathen nations, the tribal speech, the Templar speech, and the artistic speech, of their lure and spell and charm. So the kind of magic that worked on speech for the tribe, the political speech, the temple the religious speech, and the artistic speech, the Templar speech that is religious, and the artistic speech. He says Israel exercises those ways of speaking, exorcises them, because she insists that God has emptied them out, voided them. And you'll you'll hear that, that in Buber when we turn to him in a moment. Israel recognized herself in the divine no, spoken over man's naive pretenses. Majestically, the Bible is based on three divine no's. The first is man's fall, called his fall, made into his fall by God's judgment. The second is the great flood, judging the world of tribes. And the third is the exodus, the leaving of the temples and the flesh pots of Egypt, and the condemnation of everybody connected with the witchcraft of Egypt. Since he used sorcery once, even Moses could not enter the promised land. That's just you know, a remarkable aside. In listening to God's no, Israel recognized herself as God's servant, merely a man in the face of God's majesty. In this no, all merely human desires are burned out, and our notion of God's will is cleansed. Revelation is a knowledge of God's will, after his no to our will has become known. Only then is God God pure future, pure act. Only when all his former creations stand exposed as non-gods, as mere artifacts. To have revealed what is not God is the condition for all our understanding of God. And this, again, I've been talking about Maximus, so it comes to mind. But this is very resonant with Maximus' confessor, Pseudo-Dionysius, before him. In much of the Christian mystical tradition, this insistence that God can be known only on the other side of all of our knowing being stripped down to nothing. You know, that that famous line from Meister Eckhart, Eckhart, God, save me from God. Deliver me from my imaginations of you. On this basis, the Jews became prayer. Israel is neither a nation, nor a state, nor a race, but is prayer. What are the prayers of Egypt or Rome? The prayers to Apollo or to Osiris compared with, with the 150 psalms. 
the universal priesthood of all the Christian churches praise these psalms to this day. Isn't that strange? And one of the reasons I love Rosenstock UC's essay, with all the difficulties it, it introduces, is this return to the strangeness of the fact that Christian prayer begins as Jewish prayer and ends as Jewish prayer. It is a prayer shared with the Jewish Jesus. And this is a prophetic act, not only in Rosenstock UC's Nazi Germany, but in 21st century United States, in 21st century Russia, or Ukraine, or Syria, or Pakistan, or any other place, any other time. Why should there be something insuperable in these psalms? Why is it correct to say that the psalms embody Israel? as much as Abraham, Moses, or the prophets, because all Israel is prayer. The whole world repeats the Hebrew word, Amen. Again, obvious? Think about it for a moment. What it means that that word, Amen, is bound around the world. It's found in the mouth, in the mouths of people around the world. Even people who do not share Israel's faith. This prayer of true faith of Amen was separated from spellbinding, from magic, by Israel's faith. As you will remember, the slowly growing division of plain chant into music, and remember, he's writing this letter to Cynthia, Dr. Cynthia, in, in Cleveland, Ohio, 1944. The slowly growing division of plain chant into music and speech happened before in the temple city, but speech was still spell, and it remains spell in Hitler. He is a spellbinder. And so here we get Rosenstock Yussi's account of Hitler as a magician who is trapped by, caught up in the rhythms of his own speech and in trapping others in his speaking. He's a, he's a worm tongue, to use an image from Lord of the Rings. He is a spellbinder. Things that merely exist, such as his own blood, the invincible nature of Siegfried, the, the, the German myth, the Germany of his dreams before 1914, and dreams are things too, are naively invoked in his speeches as deities. They have ceased to be data. They are gods. To Hitler, they are the only powers that direct the world. So Hitler is dealing in abstractions about particular things. So there are created things, blood, the myth of Siegfried, the history of Germany as he wants to tell it, his fantasies about what Germany might be. Those things are creative, created things, are their fictions. But Hitler has made them into gods by allowing them, by engaging them magically. The God who beckons us from the end of time as the common destiny of man is an abomination to the pagan leader because the living God is not found in any past. Interestingly, to reference Willie Jennings again, in his commentary on Acts, he specifically Acts 10 and Acts 11, he stresses this point that Peter in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house runs into the fact, the hard fact, that God is a living God, a God of the present and not merely a God of the past, a God who cannot, who cannot be curtailed by what has been said. And in this section of the book, Jennings talks about how the word of God that has been spoken stands in tension with the word of God that is being spoken and that the work of discernment is the work of discerning how that word that has been spoken relates to the word that is being spoken now and that it, it our religious instinct, our political ambitions often lead us to try to use the word of the past against the word of the present to keep from having to obey this living God, the spirit who, who leads us across the boundaries we think God has set for us. This God, to come back to Rosenstock, you see, this God is quite logically denied by Hitler, whether he comes as the messianic God of Israel, as the founder of the church, or as the speaker of the Sermon on the Mount. Hitler persecutes Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. Right? And of course, not them only, but in, in this essay, that's the focus. And then I'm going to skip ahead a bit because there's a long section here in which he unpacks something of the history of German nationalism and argues that Hitler is a third attempt to free German nationalism from any check on its conscience. Right? Germans are looking for a divinized nationalism. 
Hitler's will and his God's will are nauseatingly one. The great art of speech has made Hitler crazy. Since he has the privilege of speaking, of inflaming the masses, he spellbinds, and so he hovers as a ghost from the abyss of paganism, a ghost of the days before God touched Israel's lips with his fiery coal. My will, O mortal, not thine, be done. The specific character of biblical prayer explains the uniqueness of the Bible. And I, I love this. And this, again, is he's working, Rosenstock Husey is working from the Psalms out, in a sense. right? He's arguing that the language of the Bible is language forged in prayer. And the Psalms are that record. right? That, that it's If we think of this in terms of a blast zone, like th this is the center of the blast radius. The Psalms mark the place in which the will of God and the will of human beings clash in, in prayer. We can't forget the Bible because the divine no was created in our speech during those thousand years of Jewish prayer. The divine no was created in human speech in Jewish prayer. And all the other departments of our linguistic faculty rest on this clear distinction between prayer on the one side and science, poetry, fiction, and law on the other. If we do not pray with Israel... We cannot retain our Greek mathematics or our Roman law. Again, broad strokes. But the, the heart of the insight here is not about preserving civilization. That's the last thing it is. It's about making sure that we never forget that it is only when we pray, not my will, but thy will be done. Only when we pray with Israel, the, the word of accepting the divine no against the temple, against our politics, against our art, as ends in themselves, that we can actually do the work of science, the work of law, the work of politics, the work of art and culture. Skip ahead again. Long section here. Worth reading if you can find the essay on your own. But for the sake of time and staying focused on the Psalms, I'm going to skip to this. Great nations can fall as fast as individuals. The idea that prayer is a private affair is erroneous. It is a worldwide institution, as much as science, and it must check our other trends. The Jews checked those trends. They staked their whole existence on the faith that God, not men, is in process of creating man. And I, I love the connection here to John Baer's work, his reading of the Gospel of John, the idea that when Jesus is presented, behold the human being, that is the completion of the project God starts in Eden. And of course he's drawing not only the Gospel of John, but on Irenaeus' reading of the Gospel of John. So if you're not familiar with John Baer's work, look, look to that. It's very, much, it's very much worth your time. When a spellbinder comes, the scientist obediently makes bombs, fighter planes, and other weapons. So this here in this section, Rosenstock UC is talking about the ways in which not only German Christians... But German intellectuals, German scientists, are completely, more or less, completely taken up by Hitler's spellbinding. They, they're, his magic works on them because they have not, they don't know prayer, and without prayer, science devolves into magic again. It, it leaves the scientist vulnerable to the magician. Speech. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip ahead on that. He has a whole theory here of how speech works and what we need it for. He says we need it to do science, calculations, and so on, the, the work of, of tallies. We need prayer and we need conversation. But we, we have to know the difference between them. And if we don't, if we forget them, and we don't allow prayer to purge all else that we do with language, we will fall victim to Hitler or others like him, other spellbinders. So he says... Theoretically, the scientific minds and semanticists and symbolic logicians and all other shades of rationalism should abhor spellbinders. But practically, science has called for Hitler because science no longer has a true philosophy, no longer knows its own limitations, because those limitations are discovered in prayer. Scientists should crave their opposite, that white heat of speech during which man's will is separated from God's will and men come to know God's will as differing from their own wishes and from any leader's will. That, that's the point I want to emphasize. The white heat of speech. That's what the Psalms are. The Psalms are the white heat of speech in which human will and divine will 
are shown to be separate. And we come to know that God's will is different from ours and from any leader's. So in the Psalms, we're discovering that no. Now, what I would add to Rosenstock, you see, is that we're also hearing, and at the same time, have to hear the Psalms as the coming together, the communion of the yes and the no of the divine and human in Jesus. But really, we have to hear the no first. Certainly, we cannot hear the no without the yes, but we have to hear the no. We have to know the no. The people who had believed only in science and who could not distinguish between spellbinding magic and prayer fell for stump speakers. And that's why, like what we're witnessing right now in Ukraine, what seems so obviously to be happening in Russia and here, of course, is the ways in which propaganda is controlling how we live. And the powers that be, whether that's Putin or Hitler, or our own leaders, they they are preying on our inability to distinguish between magic and prayer. Last section from Rosenstock, you see, and then I want to shift to Buber to wrap up this first reflection. To pray, then, means to be at the opposite pole from two and two or four. It means to have accepted the fact that the whole security of past conventions is no match for God's will with us at this moment. The whole security of past conventions, everything that has been, everything that seems true up to this point, is nothing compared to the God who calls all things into being, who calls those things that are not as though they were, the God who raises the dead. Right, That living God is present to us now, and in prayer, in the white, hot heat of prayer, we come up against the otherness of God's will, the holiness of God who is with us. True prayer supposes that anything might happen and that with God, nothing is impossible. True prayer could not exist inside tribal or temple worship. It was created by the creators of the future. True prayer could not exist inside tribal or temple worship because true prayer is open to a future not made by the past and not made by the people who made the past. Not made by the people who are presently in power. True prayer supposes that God is the actor who matters. God is the one who lives and acts, who moves, who has his being in ways that shape a future not our own, a future we could not make on our own. We would not know to want for ourselves much less be able to accomplish. And that, that apocalyptic dimension, is what the Psalms give us. So, again, so much more from Rosenstock Yusey here. It's an astounding essay, but I think you've, you've caught the spirit of it. So let me turn now to Martin Buber's essay in his book, Good and Evil, a ref, his reflection on Psalm 12, which goes under in the in this book goes under the title Against the Generation of the Lie. Against the Generation of the Lie. So let me read to you Psalm 12, my translate, well, the NRSV I'm reading. And then we'll look at Buber's reflections quickly. Help, O Lord, for there is no longer anyone who is godly. The faithful have disappeared from humankind. They utter lies to each other. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongues we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is our master? Because the poor are despoiled, because the needy groan, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will place them in the safety for which they long. The promises of the Lord are promises that are pure, silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will protect us. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among humankind. And so, here are Martin Buber's reflections on the generation of the lie and what Psalm 12 promises us about the God who is true. The lie is the specific evil which man has introduced into nature. 
All our deeds of violence and our misdeeds are only, as it were, a highly bred development of what this and that creature of nature is able to achieve in its own way. But the lie is our very own invention, different in kind from every deceit that the animals can produce. A lie was possible only after a creature, man, was capable of conceiving the being of truth. It was possible only as directed against the conceived truth. In a lie, the spirit practices treason against itself. He talks about, in the next part of this chapter, he talks about the fact that the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, do not specifically prohibit lying. They, they prohibit false witness. But that the psalm here is talking about lying beyond the courtroom. The speaker no longer merely suffers from liars, but from a generation of the lie. And the lie in this generation has reached the highest level of perfection as ingeniously controlled means of supremacy. That, that's what racial categorization does. That's what nationalism does. That's what capitalism with a capital C does or, or any other political, cultural, or religious-ism, Christianity as an abstraction does. But the psalmist is not content to utter his suffering and brand those who caused it. He also sees the beginning of the counteraction from above. Right? So he sees the suffering caused by the generation of the lie, but he also sees the God who's coming against the liars and against that generation for the sake of those who suffered. Right? The God who acts because the weak and the needy need an intervention, need an intercessor. More precisely, the subject of this psalm is the disintegration of human speech as a result of the lies. The liberating act of God and his sayings, the word of truth proceeding from him, are opposed to this. So that when God is speaking, he's reintegrating speech. And that, of course, as Christians, is what we have to see in Jesus. And, and you should, if, if you don't already know, you should look at what Martin Buber says about Jesus. He is, and, and with good reason, fiercely critical of Christianity and Christians, but recognizes in Jesus the prophetic call. And I think the prophetic call, one way of thinking about it, is that reintegration of human speech. God is called upon in this psalm to set free. What is he to free from? The present state of affairs. The two basic qualities of which rest on well-wishing that is, the readiness to fulfill for the other what he may expect of me in our relationship with one another, and loyalty and, or reliability. That is, a responsible accord between my actions and my explicit mind. These things have gone. Right? So, in order for our common life to work, there has to be goodwill and there has to be reliability. Goodwill and reliability. But under the conditions of the lie, goodwill is crushed and reliability is destroyed. They, they have disappeared so completely that the basis of men's common life has been removed. The lie has taken the place as a form of life of human truth. That is, of the undivided seriousness of the human person with himself and all his manifestations. Okay. So what's happened, and I think this, this is true not only in Buber's Germany and Buber's Jerusalem, it's true, absolutely true, in my Oklahoma, my Tulsa, and your city, wherever you are, that we live under the conditions of the generation of the lie. And that means instead of goodwill and reliability, we have suspicion and unpredictability. Suspicion and unreliability. And then all that gathers us then, all that, that holds us together, is a shared suspicion of those who have been unreliable for us. Those whom we are certain we cannot rely upon. All we can rely upon is a shared dislike and distaste and distrust for others. Maybe not all, but much of what we rely on. Buber then talks about the different dimensions of the lie, delusion being the first. But then he turns to this striking line in the psalm about those who speak with a double heart. That's how it's translated in RSV, which literally in Hebrew is with heart and heart. This expression, he says, must be grasped in all its depth. The duplicity is not just between heart and mouth. You know, Jeremiah's 
These people draw near to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. The duplicity is not just between heart and mouth, but between heart and heart. In order that the lie may bear the stamp of truth, the liars, as it were, manufacture a special heart, an apparatus which functions with the greatest appearance of naturalness, from which lies well up to the smooth lips like spontaneous utterances of experience and insight. So that there's a, there's a false heart that is grown alongside the true heart, which the true heart can groan in intercession. The true heart can be grieved, can be moved with compassion. The false heart, all it does is generate lies, but it does have the spontaneity that gives the appearance of honesty. And all of this, Buber says, is the work of the mighty, the work of those in power. They speak great things, and by their speaking, bind their bond slaves more to them. Right. So we we sometimes talk about personality cults and and the danger. You know, those who listen to the Mars, the the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, it's easy to to look at someone like Mark Driscoll and think the problem there is too much focus on one person. But that's that's the problem. There is not that there's a kind of person who stands out from the rest of us as particularly gifted. That's far from the problem. The problem is the person who speaks lies from a false heart in ways that have the superficial look and feel of authenticity, but in fact is is utterly rootless, grounded not in compassion, but in sheer ambition and self-will. And these are people who speak great things they make promises of making things great again and saving us from those who promise to make things great again. And all of it is a lie. All of it is a lie. And so Buber says, God will arise. God says that seeing the oppression of the poor and hearing the sign of the needy will now arise. With this now, there breaks out in the midst of extreme trouble the manifestation of a salvation which is not just bound to come sometime, but is always present and needs only to become effective. God's work is always here in its fullness. We simply have to yield to it. We have to open our lives enough to give, the, give room in the world for God's will to break forth. This is what Jesus' prayer, the Our Father, teaches us. This now, Buber says, is the decisive prophetic category. The day of the Lord on which the enthroned one arises and for terror and for rapture reveals his kingdom, which has the hidden meaning of creation from the beginning, is in the power of the prophetic vision this very present day. The psalmists who here as often prove themselves to be heirs of this vision know that the arising means both judgment and the freeing of all the oppressed of the earth. The judgment is the freeing of the oppressed of the earth. Our psalm is specifically emphatic that this judgment and this freeing are not two events, but one. Not two events, but one. God's judgment is the justifying of the world. Not in the sense that excusing what has happened, but making right every wrong, filling up every lack, straightening everything that has been broken, healing everything that has been diseased. He says of the oppressed man at whom the smooth lips puff with their speaking that he will set him in the freedom of God. He is not set in a different world. This world of ours, which is now revealed as God's world, is from now on the world of salvation. So this is no some afterlife, some antechamber on the other side of death. Like God, God's word will be spoken in this world to those who have wielded their own words, their lie, against the poor and the needy, have abused others. The psalmist has heard the sentence of God. He knows and bears witness that these words, like all God's words and like God's words alone, are pure. That is free of the dross of untruth which clings to every word of man. What the speaker says here of the words of God, with the most emphatic images he can command, goes beyond that occasion. The psalmist is no longer thinking only of the word he has heard, but God's truth is opposed in a grand antithesis to the lie of the wicked. The generation of God is set against the generation of the lie. 
So the psalmist addresses God, Thou keepest thy words, thou keepest the truth, so thou wilt preserve from the generation of the lie for the time of the world, him of whom thou hast said thou wouldest set him free. That is, each one of us poor and oppressed ones. And so he says, this Buber says in the remainder part of this essay, the generation of the lie happens again and again and again in history. But the God of the truth, the God who is true, is always liberating those who cry out for that liberation in the midst of the generation of the lie as a witness, a counter witness to the generation of the lie. God is making us true. The truth is God's alone, but there is a human truth, namely to be devoted to the truth. The lie is from time and will be swallowed up by time. The truth, the divine truth, is from eternity and in eternity. And this devotion to the truth, which we call human truth, partakes of that eternity. So, I hope you've heard in these two friends, one Jew, one Christian, in their reflections on the lies that they saw, the political and religious lies that they saw overwhelming their, their, their own people, their families, their friends, the people they worshipped with, they, they found the divine no and the divine promise of righting all wrongs in the Psalms. So what I want to do in, in coming reflections through Lent is, is to think and pray, to think about, to study, and to pray the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of penitence, the, the penitential Psalms, beginning with Psalm 6, Psalms 6, in conversation with Origen and Augustine and others. But I want it to be grounded in this sense that we're praying borrowed prayers, that we are we're children who are guests in the house of Abraham. And we're learning to pray like Jesus by praying the prayers Jesus learned to pray. And as we yield to the spirit of those prayers, as we let the white hot heat of those prayers happen in us, we're learning to say, not my will, but your will be done. And to have ourselves aligned with the will of Jesus, the wills of Jesus, in which the divine and the human are at one for the good of our neighbors. So we become people who are a generation of the truth rather than a generation of the lie.